You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. And my guest is uh, Sarah Hornsby. She does a uh, myofunctional therapy for sleep apnea. And I was telling her offline, I, I thought when you have sleep apnea, the doctor just slaps a CPAP on you and says, that's it. You know, you're, you're doomed. But it sounds like there's ways maybe to uh, intervene and improve or maybe even eliminate it. Who knows? So um, thanks for coming, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, tell me about uh, what what got you interested in. I know you do other things, but you know, at least in sleep apnea, what got you interested in it? Well, um, you know, my field is I wouldn't say new, but it's evolved a lot in the past. I would say five years, and that really has to do with our new understandings of sleep apnea and sleep disordered breathing. So, in my field, I teach people exercises, and it sounds really funny, but um, I teach people how to strengthen their tongue, strengthen their throat, breathe through their nose, and keep their tongue resting in the roof of your mouth where it should be all the time. So it sounds like, you know, who cares about that stuff? (laughs) But what we're finding is the long-term outcome of people who breathe through the mouth, people who are tongue-tied, and people who have these myofunctional disorders, the long-term outcome for these people, and it, it starts when we're very young, is sleep apnea. So mouth breathing kids will become adults with obstructive sleep apnea at some point if the symptoms aren't corrected early. Yeah, so we can really look at it in two in two ways. Prevention, you know, preventing sleep apnea from even occurring if we can treat, you know, the simple breathing issues and muscle issues in kids. And then I think myofunctional therapy really has to be included as part of the treatment. I, I don't ever want to say it's the only thing you should do, but um, you know, our, our probably our best study that's out there is a it was a meta-analysis from 2015 where they took 226 studies on oral exercises and breathing exercises, and they narrowed it down to about 11 studies, and um, they just dis- discovered that the AHI in adults after doing these exercises, um, that apnea hypopnea index can drop by 50%. So it should definitely be included, if not as a, an uh, option for treatment. Yeah. All right. So a couple of definitions. So the apnea hypopnea index, is that the number of times you stop breathing and how long you stop breathing during the night? 
Exactly. Yep. And there is a more specific measurement that I actually think is a better one to focus on, which is the RDI, and that's the respiratory disturbance index. So that doesn't just account for the obstruction or the, you know, the disruptions in breathing. This accounts for um, heart rate variability changes, um, changes happening in the brain, and it captures a lot bigger picture of what's happening in a person's sleep. So the crazy thing is that most people don't really know about this who are in the sleep dentistry or sleep medicine world. And to me, that's really surprising. So, All right, so and what is myofunctional therapy? Is that massage or what is that? No, it's basically like physical therapy, but for the muscles of your tongue and your mouth. So like I said, it sounds kind of weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, I teach people tongue exercises and breathing exercises pretty much. Really? But like yeah. uh, to strengthen your tongue, could you say like, I need you to lick a hundred stamps and mail these envelopes for me or something? <laughs> Would that be an exercise? Uh, not quite. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'll have people um, practice clicking their tongue. I have people practice even just, so it sounds funny if you don't have these things, but if you're somebody who struggled for a lifetime um, with allergies, chronic nasal congestion, um, if you're somebody who hasn't been able to breathe through your nose well, it's really hard to learn to close your mouth and breathe through your nose. And so part of the reason it's so difficult is because our nasal pathways start to, to shrink, they start to constrict, and um, it's difficult to use the nose. So even if you treat your allergies, your tonsils or adenoids are removed and your passageways are clear, um, a lot of times people just have this habit of breathing through their mouth. So when you breathe through your mouth, now your tongue is resting in the bottom. And part of what I do is teach people how to strengthen the tongue enough that at rest, while they're awake and while they're asleep, their tongue can rest in the top of the mouth and they can breathe through their nose. So all day and all night, that's the goal. And so why would, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying it as I'm listening to you. So I'm breathing through mm -hmm. my nose and not this moment mm -hmm. I'm talking, but what's the difference mm -hmm. between the tongue being in the bottom or the top of your mouth? For instance? It's a huge difference. So if you're a growing child and your mouth is open and your tongue is in the bottom of your mouth, we have so much research on this. Um, it, it alters your cranial facial growth and development. So the mandible will grow more down, the maxilla will become narrowed and restricted, and the airway is actually smaller. So there's a structural component to the low tongue and the mouth breathing that in a growing child, um, you know, that's altered. So if you're a kid breathing through your nose, your face will look very different. Your airway will be very different from a kid who grows into an adult breathing through their mouth. So there's not just the tongue component, there's the structural component. And really the reason that I got interested in this stuff is that I was a mouth breathing kid and I was super embarrassed as an adult to discover that my tongue was low and sometimes my mouth was a little bit open and I was breathing through my mouth. And I just thought, you know, how did no one tell me this? I'm in the dental field, you know, how did I not know about this stuff? And that's really what led me down the path to looking at these, these things that seem so simple and insignificant over time lead to much bigger long-term health problems. Yeah, I'm probably one of the people you've described, like, yeah, I've had allergies, <laughs> bad ones my whole life. You know, mm -hmm. I've been told I have a deviated septum. Um, yeah. Until I changed my diet, you know, the past two years, like my nose was never clear on both sides. Like at best, it would just be one nostril. Mm -hmm. You just breathe through your mouth all the time, you know, and then- Exactly, I would breathe yeah. Through my nose, like, like if I see someone in the movies that was gagged and tied up, I would have died because I couldn't breathe through my nose. You know, that's what I would yeah, think. Yeah, it's, it's so funny you say that because it's so common. And that's the thing. I mean, I think 
like 40% of people have allergic rhinitis or some sort of tonsil adenoid breathing issue. I mean, it's really high. And anyone who's ever had a breathing issue probably is going to need myofunctional therapy. And they're very likely to develop some sort of sleep disordered breathing. So it doesn't start off as full on obstructive sleep apnea. It starts off really subtle. It starts with snoring. And we all kind of think, oh, snoring, it's not a big deal. It's just annoying. But it's one of these little red flag symptoms that if snoring goes on and on for long enough, we can develop something called upper airway resistance syndrome, which is a slightly more you know, bad version, I guess, of an airway problem at night. Um, and then eventually, if you have the upper airway resistance for long enough, it can turn into the obstructive sleep apnea. And there's millions of people with obstructive sleep apnea who don't even know they have it. They just think they're tired because they work long hours or they have young kids. They don't really connect that they're not actually breathing well and sleeping well at night. So uh, do you deal mostly with kids or do you deal with adults as well? I actually, my practice is pretty specialized. I focus mostly on adults. And, you know, I think that's one of the misconceptions in the field is that this is a therapy for kids. It's like speech therapy, but it's really not. Um, my patients are mostly adults in their 30s through 60s. Most of them have sleep apnea. A lot of them have chronic TMJ problems and pain. And they're discovering that the root cause of a lot of their bigger problems is that their mouth is open, their tongue is low, and their mouth breathing. So by correcting these little simple things and helping them get their muscles working the right way, um, the tongue, you know, the muscles in the tongue are so connected to the muscles of our neck, our airway, even our face. And so if you have a lot of this dysfunctional muscle use going on, um, people end up with, like I said, bigger problems like the craniofacial pain, neck pain, head pain, headaches, clenching, grinding, all that stuff. So what makes people uh, come to you? Is it that they've tried CPAP and it just doesn't work for them? They can't take it? Or, you know, what drives them uh, into your arms? Yeah, that is one driving driver, I guess, is people are desperate. You know, they're looking online. They're like, I cannot wear the CPAP. Or my dentist gave me this uh, mandibular advancement appliance that moves my jaw forward. But it's giving me, um, you know, problems with the way my teeth are biting together or it's giving me TMJ pain. So a lot of times people are really discovering me on their own. <laughs> they're researching, they're Googling. And um, the funny thing is that I started making YouTube videos a few years ago, just as ways to educate my patients. I thought it would be easier if I could just send them a link to a video of these things that I repeat over and over all the time. And so what ended up happening is people were finding me on YouTube of all places and reaching out and saying, hey, I think I need this. Um, I would say maybe 25% of people get referred to me by a dentist or a pediatrician or, um, you know, some person that, you know, knows what I do. But most people these days are, are finding me online by researching their own symptoms and kind of coming to that conclusion on their own that they think the therapy would help them. So do you do like, uh, how do you help people? Is it in office or do you do Skype, you know, uh, sessions with people individually? Do you do like online tongue aerobics classes? Or, I don't mean to make fun of <laughs> I also want to make no, it No, no. I mean, it is kind of funny. I mean, honestly, I try to kind of make it light and humorous because it is weird, you know, like doing tongue exercises is kind of weird. So um, I don't mind at all. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, well, I, I'll just start from the beginning. My practice started off, I, I did see people in person for about four years. I had an office in West Seattle. That's where I started my business. And then in 2014, I just, I had enough people reaching out from all over the place that I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe I should take this online. And so in 
late 2014, I did. Um, I closed down my in-person office and I started seeing people online, you know, using Skype and Zoom and platforms like that. And so I now work with people all over the world, all across the country, and I do it on Skype. Um, I think one of the things that's unique about my practice is I'm just always trying to innovate. So I did that early on. I've done group classes, like you said, you know, group tongue aerobics. Um, I actually have done that. Um, I've brought on other therapists. I've made video programs. So, and, and I've made YouTube videos. Um, so I really just tried to make this stuff accessible for people because it's just not that well known. So take me through like a, a sample lesson. And then I want to ask you like, you know, how long is the protocol and what kind of results have you gotten? And take me through mm-hmm. a lesson first, like what happens? Yeah. So I would meet with someone and typically if it's their first session, you know, I'm kind of laying the groundwork for a lot of stuff. But in general, I teach about four or five exercises. So first I, you know, talk about the concepts. I show them how the exercise works. I have them give it a try. And then I actually time them. So my therapy recommendations is that you're supposed to practice your exercises for five minutes twice a day. That's the goal. So I time them, I make sure they've got it, I kind of correct their technique while they're doing it. And then they get to count that as one of their practice sessions for the day with me. So um, then I would meet back with them in two weeks. And I review the exercises, see how they look, you know, see how well they practiced. And, um, you know, critique that if for me, I kind of have to see, did they do a good job? Most people do. I mean, if you're paying a therapist to, to teach you these exercises, you know, most people will take it seriously. Um, so then I give them new exercises and, you know, time them again and make sure they've got the technique. And then we do the same thing two weeks later. Okay. And how many lessons until someone is able to get benefits and what do they Typically, pay? Yeah. My, my typical program is 12 sessions, but that's, you know, it depends. I mean, some people might need six or eight, or maybe if you have a lot going on, you might need like 15. But um, yeah, I mean, most people, you know, by the end of the therapy, I've got four very simple goals. So they have to be breathing through their nose all day and all night. Their lips have to be resting together. Their tongue has to be up fully contained, like the whole tongue, Um, the tip, the middle and the back has to be up in the roof of their mouth. And we also practice swallowing. So that includes not just saliva, but it, it includes um, swallowing liquids and food and eating. So we go through a whole bunch of exercises. Um, for some people, I mean, depending on their specific symptoms and needs, I might teach them, you know, exercises that help with snoring or exercises that help with TMJ pain or, you know, whatever their specific needs are. But the core goals don't change. You know, we, we work on, I work on that with everyone. So what are... You know, have you been able to, uh, or is it even safe? I don't know. Can you get people off their CPAP or have you um, allowed people to sleep better without a CPAP? And what are some of the results you've got for people? I mean, the results in that way are really good. And I have to be careful. I'm not a doctor. So I never want patients to think like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll just I'll just stop wearing my CPAP machine. So I always tell people, you know, the only way that you're going to be able to get off of your CPAP machine is if you can test out of it. So, um, you know. It might be worth doing these, uh, this whole therapy. And then in the next year, at some point, have a sleep, have another sleep study. Let's measure it. Let's get the actual numbers to change and see if you can get off of it. The tricky thing is if someone comes in with severe sleep apnea, like they've got an AHI of 60, even if we cut that in half and got them down to 30, that's still in the severe range. So, you know, that's a huge improvement. I mean, that's massive. But if somebody's still that bad, they still might, I mean, they're still definitely going to need a CPAP machine. 
they might need some sort of like surgical or orthodontic intervention. But I mean, going from 60 to 30 would be a significant improvement. And I do see that kind of stuff happen. But what does the person tell you? Oh, great. My API went 60 to 30. But what do the people tell you? Oh, I feel better. I Oh, yeah, for sure. That kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Some people don't need a sleep study. You know, some people just say, like, I feel better. I'm sleeping better. I feel like I have my life back. You know, my pain's gone. Um, My wife can now sleep in the same bedroom as me because I'm not snoring so loud, you know. So there, Mm. I I feel like what I'm doing is it does change people's lives. And and that's what I think is so important about it. Um, And I I also realize that there's a lot of people in prevention mode, kind of like me. So I discovered I was mouth breathing. I I was an adult. Luckily, I was pretty young. I was like 23 at the time. But by fixing my habits and correcting my own muscular and breathing symptoms, now I know that my chances of developing sleep apnea at some point are so much lower. So you know, for people who just realize, oh, I'm a mouth breather, or oh, my tongue is in the bottom, maybe, you know, maybe there's something to this. Um, the natural progression, if those things don't get corrected, and maybe you're in this boat, is that at some point, you will develop bigger symptoms. So if, if you can get it, get your stuff corrected before those big symptoms really start taking place, and that's way better. Um, but yeah, people yeah. get good. I mean, people get amazing changes. And, and that's really what makes it worth doing, you know. Well, let's dig in a little bit. So how long on average? I know everyone's different. Yeah, Do people yeah. tell you that they're, that they're sleeping better? I would say people notice changes for sure after probably four to six weeks. That's when, that's about the time in therapy where we're starting to focus more on the middle and the back of the tongue and when nasal breathing is getting more comfortable. So that's when people really start to kind of feel the difference rather than just being like, okay, I'm doing this stuff, but nothing's helping. So I would say, yeah, four to six weeks into treatment is pretty common. And when they say they sleep better, what does that mean? They wake up fewer times or they just wake up more rested or? Most people will talk about waking up feeling like much more well rested, like they actually, you know, slept through the night or they weren't so restless. Um, A lot of people get, it doesn't sound like a typical, you know, sleep apnea symptom, but some people have the insomnia effects even where they can't, or they they can't fall asleep or they go to sleep and they wake up at three in the morning and they can't fall back asleep. So stuff like that tends to get much better. I also incorporate a lot of sleep hygiene techniques. So I'll talk about, you know, avoiding blue light, uh, you know, on your screens when you're trying to go to sleep and, um, you know, things that you can do otherwise, like the heat, you know, the temperature of your room, um, things that aren't just myofunctional therapy things I try to incorporate in because my goal for people is that they sleep better. I think, I mean, that's a big part of my therapy practice. And, um, you know, it's kind of one of my, I guess, unique, um, it's important to me. So I really work on it a lot with my patients, I guess. So that's great. I mean, I'm sure everyone can anecdotally agree, you know, when I sleep great, which is rare, which <laughs> when I sleep really well, when I wake up, I feel amazing the whole day. Yeah, it's a, it's a big difference. When I don't for sleep sure. well, yeah, when I don't sleep well, everything sucks, you know, and you're short mm-hmm. with people around you and you just feel like all day. So it's, it's mm-hmm. terrible, you know, so good sleep is like massively important. And, you know, everyone I'm sure harkens back to the days when they were kids. And, you know, mm-hmm. I remember I would lay down the next thing I knew it was morning. I feel great. I know then, those are the days, right? And, <laughs> and as you get older, you're going to get up to pee or, you, you know, stuff yeah. had dogs bark, kids bother you, or you just can't mm-hmm. sleep, you know, and you wake up 10 times and eh, 
So I'm sure everyone listening can relate. Yeah. And so, my um, sleep, I mean, I can tell you, I would have never thought I was a tired person at all. I mean, I always did well in school when I was a kid and in high school and college, I was always very athletic. I used to run marathons. I played sports. And so I never would have said that I was a tired person. But once I started changing my breathing and my sleep got better and I started actually working on some of these things, um, I started realizing that I actually was tired and I just, I didn't have anything to compare it to. I didn't realize that I was actually pretty sleepy a lot. So, um, you know, I just remember thinking like, oh, I just like taking naps, but in reality, like I don't need naps now. (laughs) Um, So it's kind of funny that when I was in my twenties, I was much more tired than I am now in my thirties. And I think, you know, that's a good, that's a good feeling. You know, that means, okay, I'm I'm actually healthier, you know? Well, um, a question, what if uh, you, you have someone who says my nose is always congested. I can't breathe through my nose. I just literally would mm-hmm. choke to death. What do you do for those kind of people? Um, a lot of it is practice. So I start off with, you know, let's do five minutes of nasal breathing at a time. Um, you know, this is assuming they've been cleared by the ENT. Um, you know, the ENT doesn't say, oh, you have like massive polyps or something in your nose or your septum is so deviated, it's completely blocked. Or, you know, this is after they've been screened for actual structural issues. Um, then if it's, if it is, you know, clear, <laughs> but it just feels really difficult, then I work on allergy management. There's a really good buteco breathing exercise that will clear your nose of congestion. I, I teach my patients this, um, buteco breathing is kind of a, a breathing method, I guess, that is common, um, among myofunctional therapists. We overlap a lot in what we teach. And uh, that is, I mean, that's such a good tool for everyone having their tool belt. You can look it up. It's just, if you Google, you know, how to unblock your nose or you look up someone named Patrick McEwen, um, he's one of the, I would say, leading Buteco breathing experts and he's got lots of books and information. So I incorporate a lot of those exercises and it's amazing with a little practice and some techniques that, you know, change your breathing. You can actually learn to breathe through your nose. It just, it takes time and It might take, like I said, three to four weeks to be comfortably breathing through your nose. But if you start with five minutes a day and then 10 minutes a day, I mean, with kids, I even have them put a little piece of tape on their lips for five or 10 minutes and they just have to, they're they're forced to use their nose and to get used to it. And it's for a short time. um, And it's it's really good. Um, When we breathe through our nose, we get nasal nitric oxide. So it's a molecule that's basically made in our noses. If we mouth breathe, we don't get it at all. And when we inhale air through our nose, that molecule is released into our respiratory tract. And um, it really is an anti-inflammatory molecule. So once you start nasal breathing, now some of these benefits of, of actually, you know, using the nitric oxide and using your nasal passageways, um, now they can actually help you. So it is kind of like getting out of a bad dysfunctional cycle. Like once you can break the cycle, now it becomes so much easier. I mean, do you, you know, if someone has a lot of trouble, though, can they use like a a nasal spray so they can even practice for five minutes or 10 minutes? Oh, yeah, for sure. I'll have people, mm -hmm, I'll say, yeah, use a nasal spray, um, blow your nose, you know, if you have to use like any anything to help you, you know, get that, you know, mucus out or clear the congestion, Um, take an allergy medication if you need it. Anything you can do to keep the nose clear while you're learning um, is critical. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I just didn't know if you had to do that with some people to help them and, you know, what you would do. 
Definitely. And, you know, some people don't want to take those steroid nasal sprays. There are natural options, but I think if you have to um, take, you know, a prescription nasal spray for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, I think just to get your body um, used to it, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But there is a a product called Clear. It's spelled X-L-E-A-R. And they have lots of natural nasal sprays and remedies to help with breathing. And they use things like xylitol and grapeseed extract. And those are supposed to help with um, mucus and congestion and things like that too. So there's some natural remedies as well as medications that I'll recommend to people. Well, let's say I do the exercises with you. Mm -hmm. I lay down to sleep. You know, I want to do them while I sleep. I don't know how it gets locked in. I guess the muscle memory comes from breathing through your nose more and more of the time each day, right? And doing the exercises. It does. Yeah. So, I mean, the goal is and everybody in the beginning starts with their tongue down 100% of the time, the mouth is open most of the time. And by the end of the treatment, which is why it takes a long time, you know, I always tell people it's not a quick fix. Um, One of the big misconceptions in the field is, you know, doctors will say, Oh, go to Sarah, she'll teach you just a couple exercises. And I'm like, it is a lot more than that. And a lot of that is because of the nighttime. So just because you can keep your tongue up and lips together and breathe through your nose during the day, doesn't mean it will carry over tonight. It will eventually, but it does take practice. And it, there's some specific techniques you can use to help you at night, but your your mouth will be open at night if it's open during the day. If your tongue is low during the day, it will definitely be low at night. But that can change. That actually is something you can improve. Um, what about, um, let's say I start doing lessons with you and um, I want to lock mm-hmm. it in quicker. Should I take that clear nasal spray at night or should I use like those breathe right nasal strips would that help me to move along the path faster or that definitely hurt my progress no no um anything I mean a lot of what I do with this is just coaching people I tell them you know from this day forward when we're starting treatment your job is to keep your nose clear enough that you can breathe through it so whether that's using steam or a neti pot a nasal spray um blowing your nose like people have to be aware enough that their nose is congested and they have to be able to take steps to fix it and whatever those steps are, um, that I want them to know is, is what they've got to do. You know, if their goal is to breathe through their nose, they have to be able to, you know, course correct <laughs> if they're not able to. They've got to be able to deal with right. it. So I help with that, of course. It sounds like this wouldn't be just for sleep apnea, though. What about people that, uh, I mean, it's, maybe it's silly, but what about people that want to sing or people that have had throat or nose or other kind of surgery and want to be able to restore function to those tissues, you know? Um, yeah, you're seems exactly like all this right. Would help voice coach, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I've had a few Teachers. people um, reach out to me who are singers. Um, I've had some people reach out who, you know, they they're uh, they feel like they've got like low muscle tone. They feel like it's you know causing them to slur. They don't feel like they have control over their mouth. I mean, I hear all sorts of things that you wouldn't <laughs> think of. Um, one of the biggest things that I, is getting a lot of attention right now is tongue ties. Um, I don't know. Have you heard much about tongue ties? Tongue ties. Yeah. Tongue ties? Well, being yeah, tongue tied. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So tongue ties. So the underside of the tongue, we all have a frenum. It's that band of tissue. You can see it. If you lift up your tongue, it looks like a line on the underside. Yeah. In some people, this is too tight or too short. And it's a re- very minor like genetic mutation, but it runs in families and it affects so much. So other than breathing, the other reason somebody's tongue would be in the bottom of their mouth is because the tongue has a physical problem with it. And no matter how hard you hmm. try, you've got to get your tongue up to the top. So 
in babies, we've recognized this for years with breastfeeding and, you know, not gaining weight and stuff like that. But what we're finding, and we have actually a lot of research on this now, is that babies and kids who are tongue-tied and it's never corrected, these people become adults with sleep apnea. So now we're starting to look at so much more than just the breathing. Now we're looking at the structural components with the tongue too. And that's, I mean, it's a huge topic right now. And it's, it's getting kind of controversial because, you know, it's, I think in healthcare, we kind of have these things where the pendulum swings. And, you know, right now there's so many people talking about it that, you know, the criticism is, you know, it's the flavor of the week. It's not a real thing. It's doctors are inventing it, which I don't think is true. I mean, we are seeing a lot more tongue ties than ever before. And people don't know why, but, um, you know, there's a lot of people talking about epigenetic changes and, you know, what is our environment and our food and our, you know, the toxins around us, what is that doing? And, you know, how is that affecting kids and people? So maybe that's why we're seeing a lot more tongue ties. So yeah, it's a whole different, I mean, it's a whole huge realm. What are some of the surprising results that you've seen? Like, are people telling you their dental health is changing because of this? Because I would think, if you breathe through your nose all the time instead of your mouth, the microbiome of your mouth would adjust to accommodate you know, this more anaerobic regime. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, yeah, we have known for a long time that the periodontal tissues, you know, the gums, the ligaments around your teeth, um, all of these tissues are directly affected by mouth breathing. So even if you're only mouth breathing at night, your mouth is drying out, those bacteria are changing, you know, that microbiome is different if you're mouth breathing all the time versus nasal breathing. So you're definitely at a higher risk for gum disease, tooth decay, lots more dental problems if you mouth breathe. So that's like a very basic connection that I I will talk about with dentists, because not all dentists are looking at this. I think that's a really important thing for listeners to know is if you go ask your dentist about this, there's probably a 99% chance they won't know. They won't know what myofunctional therapy is. They'll tell you mouth breathing doesn't matter. And so that is the the really interesting thing about this field is it's out there if you look for it, but it's not considered a mainstream treatment by any means. So unless your doctor or dentist has had specific training and who, unless they've gone out of their way to educate themselves on this, they won't know about it. Uh, so, yeah. you know, that's, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> Okay. Well, I mean, this is a, a great call. I still get a lot more to ask you, but I don't want to belabor it. Um, <laughs> no, that's so what, okay. Yeah, actually, well, if you don't mind, one last thing. You, you mentioned, mm-hmm. I heard this from a dentist, actually, um, that I guess our nose tissue puts out nitric oxide. And when you breathe into your nose, that gets entrained in the airstream. And it's supposed to make your mm-hmm. breathing more efficient by, you know, I guess up to 18% or something. What, what's your experience with that phenomenon? What do you think this, uh, this does for people to breathe through their nose in relation to nitric oxide? Yeah, um, I mean, nasal nitric oxide is super important. Um, other than, like I said before, it does have anti-inflammatory properties. So if you struggle with nasal breathing, if you can make yourself do it, it can actually help you. So um, as far as better oxygen absorption, I think if you look at something called the Bohr effect, which I'm not an expert on, but it has to do with the, the CO2 oxygen exchange during respiration. And this is really saying that if we mouth breathe, we're over breathing, we're in the state of hyperventilation, and we actually can't utilize the oxygen molecules um, as well when we're, we're mouth breathing as when we're nasal breathing. And it has to do with CO2 levels and basically um, it's carbon dioxide that stimulates breathing. And we don't really think of it that way. We think, oh, just breathe more 
um, breathe big breaths, uh, you know, through your mouth and, and you'll get lots of oxygen. Um, you really don't. So I would say that is a big deal too. And, and I know there's a role that nitric oxide plays with that, but I'm definitely not an expert on the, you know, biology and the chemistry that's going on in our blood with it. Um, but yeah. yeah, we do know, I mean, mouth breathing is definitely connected with our sympathetic nervous system response. So fight or flight mode um, is mouth breathing. Nasal breathing is more connected to our parasympathetic um, nervous system. So there's so many things going on physiologically that are different if you're breathing through your mouth versus your nose. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really an important thing to look at and it gets completely overlooked most of the time. You know, it's funny if you learn to meditate or if you do sports or I mean, all kinds of physical activity, Tai Chi, whatever it is, I'm always hearing them breathing through your nose, basically mm -hmm. out through the mouth. But they all recommend that. And it's kind of funny that what do they know by anecdote or experience that uh, mm -hmm. we're finding out through science, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's super fascinating. So, I mean, you can really go down the rabbit hole of looking at all this stuff. And so, you know, if your listeners are interested, I would say just start Googling, start looking. Um, you'll be amazed at of what comes up and um, how much information there actually is even though, you know, it really does take looking for it to find it. Uh, one last question. Um, mm -hmm. Breathing in through your nose and out through your nose versus breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth. Is it harder to train one or the other? And is it, is it best to breathe in and out through the nose or in through the nose and out through the mouth? What's the distinction? You know, uh, this is a good question. I, I think, I mean, me personally, when I'm in yoga classes or when people say that, I still breathe in through my nose, out through my nose, because maybe that's just like my bias and my training. And I'm like, no, I don't want to breathe through my mouth. Um, I'm honestly not sure the answer to that. But um, for me and for yeah. my patients, I always say in through the nose, out through the nose. So. <laughs> okay. That's great. Well, it's been, I've been very excited to talk to you about this. I think it's super important health-wise. And uh, I love what you do. With, you oh, know, it's thanks. nice to have alternatives to like this you know, again, slap a CPAP on somebody or give them a pill or, you know, there's yeah. always better alternatives, I think, or adjuncts to the existing therapy. So, um, yeah. so what's the best I, way for listeners to reach out to you? Um, you know, yeah, you can um, look for me, uh, go to my website. It's myfaithology.com. I'm sure you'll link it. Um, you can find me on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Um, I don't do a lot on Instagram, but I try once in a while. Um, YouTube is probably the biggest one. Uh, you can find my videos on there. And then if you want to reach out and, you know, get a consultation, you can do that too. Okay. And yeah, I, I interrupted your closing statement, but tell me, um, you know, what did you want to say in closing? Oh, I just wanted to say it really is something that actually addresses root causes. And uh, I appreciate that so much because I feel like a lot of what we do in modern medicine and dentistry is just treating symptoms. So um, being able to actually say, okay, well, why does someone have sleep apnea? Why does someone have this jaw pain? And okay, it's connected to their, t to their tongue and breathing. I think um, that's that's huge. And so, yeah, it's important. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad that you had me on. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, 
there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. FutureTech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.